0: hey richard gottlieb chris Burns, how you doing i'm doing great
1: it's springtime oh it's springtime you know what that means what does that mean (laughs) that means that chris Heavenly is our guest today
0: Oh, okay, I guess the hibernation season is over and he's back ready to talk to the toy industry. Uh, we'll yeah. get into that in a minute. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the ToyGuy.com, marketing and media agency, Chiscom, and advertising agency, Precise TV. And Chris Heatherly, welcome
2: you have thank you, here. thank you.
0: Hard as it may be to believe, there may be some people in the toy industry among our listening audience who don't know you as as well as Richard and I do. Can you start out by telling us a little bit about you and, and what you're up to these days?
2: So I worked at Disney for 14 years um, as an executive the first eight, nine years of that, I was in the uh, toy and consumer electronics business. Ultimately, I was the vice president of North America Toys. So I oversaw design, production, marketing, retail uh, aspects of uh, our toy lines, along with my creative partner, Lynn Mazzocco, Um and worked with Mattel and Hasbro and Funko and lego and every uh, major toy manufacturer and so worked with a great broad swath of the toy world my background really prior to that had been in uh tech i'd grown up in silicon valley in the computer industry um and so i wanted to get back to that so i went to disney interactive and wound up overseeing club penguin uh for several years Uh, which was one of the most special experiences of my life. And then wound up taking over Disney Mobile. And then I went to Universal uh, where I was at for three years and built a games team over there and got to work on all kinds of great stuff. A lot of Jurassic World in particular, um, but got to work with a lot of great film creators and uh, got to meet Steven Spielberg and I had a really great time over there. And then I left and spun out one of the games that we've been working on, uh, which happened to be a toy-based game, which was uh, Funko Pop Blitz, um, which launched last fall. That is off to a very strong start and looks like it's going to be another hit. Um, and since then, I've been doing consulting uh, and working with both toy and game makers, I'm getting into all kinds of new tech spaces like the metaverse with a company I'm working with that makes games for Roblox, uh, NFTs, uh, something I know you guys want to talk about. Um, so I've got my fingers in a, in a, in a lot of pies. And then in addition to that, I'm making my own uh, game at the moment with a few of my best pals and, and, uh, you know, some of the most talented game developers I've worked with from universal and Disney. And so it's three of us making a game together, Uh, And I call it kind of call it our acoustic album because it's just three of us instead (laughs) of the, yeah, the, the, the cadre that we're used to, Uh, you know, we used to, we used to make games with, you know, 15, 20 people or more, and now it's just the three of us, but it's really a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm keeping busy. Chris, if
1: I could just take you back to uh, Club Penguin for a minute. It was a wonderful play format, and it's really doing, I think, a lot of the things that people are still aspiring to do. Very engaging for children and their families and a great way to virtually form a community. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey with Club Penguin?
2: I became very close friends with the co-founders of Club Penguin when the company was bought. I had that Silicon Valley background and tech background. And at that time, I wasn't leading the toy business yet. I was running this thing called Toy Morrow, which was a toy tech lab that we had created. We were doing all kinds of toy tech innovation. We looked five years in the future and said, what technology is going to be available to us five years from now? So Disney has patents on things like uh, toys that can see with computer vision uh, and augmented reality board games and robotics and things that we created. When we acquired Club Penguin, I was one of the first people to go up to Kelowna from Disney. And I met the co-founders and in particular, um, Lane Maryfield and I just hit it off. Uh, it was kind of love at first sight. He was a uh, Steve Jobs, fanboy, slash wannabe, and so was I. And everyone else at Disney was trying to figure out how do we do the Disney thing and stick our tendrils into this and put it everywhere. And there are ways in which that machine can be helpful and there are ways in which it can over-commercialize and kill things. I was one of the few that really wanted to figure out how to build the brand in a measured way and do it over time, take a long-term approach and make sure that we protected the specialness of what we bought in the asset. And Lane and I just really saw eye to eye and built a relationship. And then one day he said, Hey, I need someone to sort of be my number two. And he was like, at some point I'm going to step out and want to do something on my own. And I need somebody that I can trust, um, with club penguin. And so I came in and was head of production and then ultimately, um, wound up taking over after lane left about 18 months later, club penguin at that time had just about hit its first peak it was peaking in North America and about to peak in, uh, you know, some of the other territories. And up until that point, it, it had been, it had just been up and to the right. And then it was starting to reach that point where kind of all the easy success had come and it was, how do you continue to grow? And so when I got involved, I sort of said, let's, you know, let's, let, let's go all out. Like, let's figure out how we just, keep doing really exciting things uh, to get fans re-engaged. And Club Penguin at that time had these monthly events called parties. And at first the parties were just like furniture and things, you know, they were, they were sort of, they were lightly themed kind of events. And we went all out with like storylines and advertising campaigns and did all of these super Epic events, some of them original IP. So we did things like we, took the spy agency in club penguin, which was the elite penguin for CPF. And we had the bad guy in the game, Herbert blow it up. Um, and we were going to create a new EPF. We added a whole new game and saga to the Karjitsu franchise within the game. Um, but we also did things that brought IP into the game for the first time. So we did the Marvel, uh, a Marvel crossover event, which was the first time we'd ever done anything with Disney IP. And it was massive. We did, Star Wars.
1: What you're describing sounds to me a lot like what Fortnite is doing right now.
2: Or Roblox. It's exactly what, it's it's a lot what Fortnite and Roblox are doing now. And there are a lot of ways in which Club Penguin was ahead of its time. You know, no one called it a metaverse back then, but Club Penguin was absolutely a metaverse. Not only did we get the game on mobile, but we had standalone mobile games. We had a sled racing game, for example, that you could play as a standalone game that connected to your Penguin account, and you could take all your rewards earned in that game back to Penguin. So we were doing a lot of things. You know, the Jitsu brand, we had a physical card game that had unlocks. Um, that you could unlock virtual cards in the game that was a precursor to, to some of the NFT things we're seeing now. We had the events, the monthly parties, which definitely was a precursor to what Fortnite is doing with season passes and the IP crossovers they're doing. You know, and Roblox at that time, by the way, was one of our competitors, but they were actually quite small by comparison to Penguin. Roblox will tell you, it took them a really long time to get traction. The thing that they did is, you know, we had the igloos that you could decorate and you could make your avatar. And they took that to the next level and let you make your own gameplay. So there's a lot that we were doing in Penguin that that people still look back to and sort of point to as inspiration for a lot of things that have come later.
0: And for people who might not know, when you say metaverse, what, what does that mean to people?
2: It has different definitions depending on what you're talking to, but really what I think of as the metaverse is it's an online virtual world where you have social interactions and you have a presence with your avatar, that kind of thing, Um, but also where it's multi-game. So it's not just one game. The easiest way to put it is if you've ever read or seen the movie Ready Player One, it's Ready Player One, where it's basically... A mashup of pop culture and gaming and interactive experiences. That's what people call the metaverse.
0: And how do you think that's changing how kids connect with one another and also how they consume entertainment? Because it's not it's it's anything but passive sitting and watching television or watching YouTube.
2: What's happening with Roblox, I think, cannot be underestimated, especially for toy manufacturers. Three or four or five years ago, you had to have a YouTube strategy if you were a toy company. I feel like today you have to have a Roblox strategy. I saw an article the other day that said that half of all kids in North America played Roblox over the pandemic, and I don't doubt that. I mean, Roblox and Minecraft have really aggregated the kids' audience, and what's happened in kids entertainment um since I was at Disney, you know, back in those days, if you wanted to create a new IP, you know, the dream was you get a show on Disney Channel or Nick or Cartoon Network. Well, none of those networks really have they don't have the viewership that they used to have. And the kids landscape is so much more fragmented because it's not just those channels, it's Netflix, It's Disney plus it's all the different streaming services. They have kids content. And what's happened, especially with the binge model is that kids will watch a whole bunch of episodes at once, and then they'll move on to the next IP. And so you don't kids. Television is not creating the stickiness that it used to, that really allows you to create new IP. You still have some breakthrough IPs coming out of the, out of the kids television space. But it's, but it's harder than it ever was, and it's fewer and further between. And if you look at categories like boys' action, it's dominated by gaming brands. Roblox, it's Fortnite, it's Minecraft, it's Pokemon. And so gaming has kind of taken that place in the zeitgeist, especially for boys, but increasingly with girls. The thing about Roblox is that it's both a virtual world, but it's also got the user-generated content component of youtube so many of these kids that are robloxians are kids who are making games for other kids to play and then they become influencers within the roblox community and so it's got all the dynamics of kind of a virtual world plus youtube you know in this interactive environment and the thing is that because minecraft and roblox have really aggregated all of that audience they have now have much larger daily audiences than any individual kids' television channel.
1: You're making a very good point about the lack of stickiness. When movie companies decide to lead with streaming as their format for showing their movies rather than premiering at movie theaters, are they running the risk of losing some of their stickiness that comes from a big screen event?
2: Don't know yet. If you look during the pandemic, take a movie like Trolls. Trolls did not do at the box office what it, what they estimate that it would have done without the pandemic, but it did much more in home video. So, or in the or the in home releases they call it. Admittedly, there wasn't a lot of entertainment coming out, but it got you know played and replayed and replayed and replayed by 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 people who got that movie. And one of the things that we saw even at Disney with the DVDs was, you know, the movie gives you this big bang and big marketing. Uh, You know, there's a lot of money spent around the marketing, uh, the launch of of a new movie in theaters, but it wasn't really until the DVD got into homes that you saw the big lift. Right. Because what would happen with a film like frozen is, people might go to the theater once, maybe twice, but it's just too expensive to keep going. When they get that DVD in the house, the little girl who loves Frozen is going to watch that a bazillion, bazillion times, and that keeps Frozen alive in the everyday conversation of the family, and that's why they want to keep going to Frozen events and buy more Frozen merchandise and Frozen, Frozen, Frozen. And so, you know, what's happened with theatrical windows is the in-home release is going to be... 45 days after the theatrical release the marketing that's spent is going to be for that entire window not just for the theatrical window and so i think that feature film is finally getting to a place where it's finding a model where it can make i think merchandise hits again but the studios have to make the right movies and i think one of the biggest challenges has been that the filmmakers have not wanted to make these very toy forward movies. Look at a movie like Soul. It's a brilliant movie and I love it, but it's not going to sell any merchandise. And that increasingly is kind of the fair that filmmakers <laughs> want to work in. But I do think that the theatrical window is back to a place where it can create opportunities. I think the television Landscape is going to continue to be very fact fragmented, and it's going to continue to be a challenge. Certainly, in that binge model, the exception I think is Disney Plus, which just never bet against Disney. But also the fact that they're releasing things on that old school weekly release cadence—you know—it gives you a reason to come back and re-engage. But back to Roblox, that's the secret, right? Of games is games are sticky and they can be replayed. Where shows. If you have really young kids, they'll watch a show again and again and again, but as they age, they want to watch something and move on to the next thing. We intentionally build mechanics in that make games replayable. And so part of the reason that I think you see Roblox and Minecraft amassing these audiences and taking eyeballs away from kids' television is, first of all, kids are growing up with iPads and computers from virtually birth. Second of all, interactive media is a lot more engaging than just passively sitting back and watching something. And third, it's social. And you saw a lot of that in the pandemic where people of all ages, um, but especially kids, are using... Something like Roblox or back in the day, it was Club Penguin. I used to say Club Penguin was, you know, the world's largest playground. You know, Chris,
1: if I'm calculating correctly, Club Penguin kids today are anywhere from about 12 to 20 years old. You and Club Penguin were formative in their lives. Do you think you can point to anything today that you think really came about? If you were still doing Club Penguin today, would you have tried to figure out a way to keep engagement for children who had graduated?
2: Absolutely. Club Penguin was really easy to pirate. And so a bunch of kids basically stole the flash files of Club Penguin and created their own pirate servers. And so Club Penguin was shut down several years ago, but those private servers over the pandemic exploded in use. There was a huge return to nostalgia in gaming for kids so you saw kids go onto the club penguin private servers minecraft had a resurgence and it was all these teenagers who were re-engaging and i logged on for a little while and played as my character again uh, with some of those kids i would definitely re-engage with that audience today i think club penguin was always about kids and i think that's okay we always talked about one of the missions of Club Penguin was preserving the innocence of kids. And so I think it gets hard to intermingle a teenage audience and adult audience that want different types of content and that have different behaviors with a kid audience and still keep the kid audience safe. So I would still find ways to engage with those teenagers, just like we did back in the day, but I wouldn't change what Club Penguin is. Um, Where Roblox, for example, has made the decision they want to age up, um, and I think that makes total sense for them to age uh, with their audience because they've never had that element of being just about kids. It's just that they started with kids. In terms of what impact do I think Club Penguin had, kids all over Twitter on social media still have Penguin avatars, still talk about Penguin. Parody accounts of me actually on Twitter that have created problems for me over time with kids posting as me. The Club Penguin community is still out there and still engaged, and Club Penguin was a really special part of their lives. One of the ways I've seen it show up in the world is when the Parkland shootings happened, you'll remember all those kids who protested and went on television. I looked up some of those kids on Twitter just to see what they were saying, and a bunch of them had penguin avatars. Wow! One of the things, Club Penguin always had a message about kids can do anything. You can make the world a a better place. And when I saw those kids doing that with Parkland, I thought, wow, like they're doing exactly what we told them to do. I like to think that those lessons of community and caring about something more than yourself and being kind to people, being inclusive. I like to think those messages had something to do with putting that message out there.
0: You mentioned that Companies need a Roblox strategy, and I, and I agree. It's a great way to reach kids where they are, which is, the, which is the goal. I read an article in The Motley Fool talking about a Nerf relationship with, with Roblox that they're going to do licensed Nerf blasters. So basically, they're going to yeah. take a Nerf blaster and put Roblox on it. What do you think about the effectiveness of that? Because it's very hard to take the characters off of Roblox since there's so many of them. How do you, what do you yeah. think a licensing strategy would be for a brand engaged with Roblox?
2: I think the wrong way to think about it is as Roblox monolithically and to think of it more in a way like Lego, where what Lego has done is sub-segment into these different themes that reach different audiences. You're seeing that happen with Roblox as well. One of the most popular games on there is called Adopt Me. It's all about pet adoption and care and nurture. You know, and I've often wondered, why doesn't someone just get the the rights to adopt me and make a toy line out of that um, on its own? So I think where we were is like Roblox creating its toy line that's about the Roblox figures and everything. Where I think it's going to go is Roblox as a platform that can launch a lot of different toy brands. One of the things that's interesting about Roblox, however, and one of my critiques of them is they... Automatically get licensing rights to anything that's on their platform as a pass-through, and so if you look at that deal, I'm certain they reached out to the people whose games were involved in that deal in in the Nerf deal. But you saw things like the Adopt Me Blaster and the you know like different different sub uh, games in Roblox that were part of that program. You know those games weren't created by Roblox; they were created by users. It creates a challenge for A toy company or for a larger creator that wants to create an IP and launch it on Roblox if you automatically have to give this pass-through right to Roblox where they theoretically could use your own creative against you. And so I think things like this are going to have to be worked out over time to allow Roblox to be as big as possible in the toy world. But if they do it right, I think Roblox could be what YouTube has been. Think about how many toy lines, dozens and dozens of toy lines and multiple successful toy lines launched off of YouTube. I think Roblox will be the same thing.
0: We've talked a lot about tech. One of the emerging trends in techs are NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Do you see it as having applications in the toy business?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what NFTs really are is digital ownership of a digital thing a true ownership of a digital thing. What true ownership means is that the ownership of that is verified by the blockchain. It means that if the people who created that digital collectible and sold it to you were to go out of business, you still own that asset. If you want to take that asset and go sell it in a, in a third party marketplace, like say OpenSea um, or Nifty Gateway, which are, you know, two of the, two of the exchanges that do this, you can you can sell it independent of whoever created the the digital collectible because you own this thing and you can sell it wherever you want. It increases the value. People are employing really smart collection strategies from the trading card business that are making these NFTs rare and collectible. But you know the company that I'm involved with, Recur, and I think there will be other companies like this too. I think Tops is trying to do a similar thing, is to make NFTs accessible to the average pocket money collector, as well as the people who want to get that rare, rare thing that potentially could be worth thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're going to see NFTs. I mean, you saw the Funko announcement. Um, Funko is a pretty major development in the space where they're going to start bundling NFTs into their toys, into some of their toys as a value add. It does raise the question, if I buy a... Funko toy and I have a Funko NFT. Which one is the real one? And if I sell the toy or I keep the toy and I sell the NFT, if I if I split them up, does that destroy the value? And so the market's going to have to figure that out. So I think they're here to stay.
0: What about what I've been reading about NFTs? Is that they are so resource heavy in the production of them? Is that something that's going to be a challenge for sustainability issues for for companies?
2: It's a challenge in a bunch of ways but it's getting solved. Without getting too technical, what the blockchain was designed originally designed to do was to secure financial transactions like, you know, Bitcoin where you're trading actual money. And the level of security that you need for that is not in order to create new coins, is not necessarily the same level of security that you need for example for an animated gif. And so there's a new system that's being created that is much less resource intensive that will allow these uh, NFTs to be created and traded with far fewer computing resources. So I think the concerns about energy usage are kind of a legacy concern that will get dealt with. The thing that I think is kind of happening in NFTs a little bit is what happened with comic books in the 90s, where first you had the issue zeros and then the um, and then the foil covers and the foil cover with a bag and the foil cover with a bag and a trading card, and you had all of these rare exclusive things that were happening at, in the market, and it oversaturated not just – the amount of comic book stuff and created this balloon where comic book companies got very greedy and went out and reprinted uh, allegedly rare uh, comics. But also there was so many rare things that it devalued the very concept of rarity. When everything is rare, then is anything rare? So I think that there's some of that going on in the kind of bubble phase of NFTs. And you know, when you look at new technology adoption curves, you always go through this kind of initial pop and then this, what's called the trough of disillusionment. I think we're going to go through a trough of disillusionment. But long-term, NFTs, the technology, and what it enables is unique, and it's going to be here to stay. And I think, as it applies to the people who are investing early, some of these guys are going to lose their shirts, and some of them may find that they bought something that's... You know, super valuable over time. If you look at the history of trading cards, we have every reason to believe that some of those will be worth a lot of money in the future.
1: So if I have an NFT and I want to display it, am I able to do so? And if so, how?
2: Yes, and there's a whole market of stuff that's to come. I think you'll actually see resurgence of digital picture frames because of NFTs. But then the other thing that's being worked on that's interesting um, is there's a company, I think it's called Living Window, that is doing a um, holographic display that Uh, that people are looking at using as a way to display NFTs. The other thing that you could do with NFTs that we anticipate is not too long from now, you could go into Minecraft or you could go into Fortnite and take that digital piece of art and hang it up in your room in one of these MMOs. And so we've yet to see all the applications for NFTs. The other thing that's interesting about NFTs is they're upgradable. So what an NFT really gives you is it's like a certificate to own something. And it could be that today what you own is a video clip and tomorrow it becomes more than that because there's a new application for it.
0: Chris Heatherly, we're going to ask you the question we ask everybody who joins us on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret.
2: I think the secret is that games and animation are going to merge and become a new interesting Kind of hybrid of interactivity and high fidelity entertainment. I saw that Brad Lewis, who had worked on Ratatouille, had worked on the Cars two sequel, just made an animated short using the Unreal Engine, which is a game engine. For those who don't know, what's interesting about that is the stuff that's made in the Unreal Engine is made in real time, um, meaning it's not you, you don't have to render it out; it's rendered as you view it. And so what that means is that it can also be interactive. And so I think this whole interactive TV slash movie hybrid thing is a whole new medium. It's kind of a game and it's kind of a film television. But I think for our space, for the kids space, it will be something that will be an exciting new medium that kind of combines the the best of both worlds.
0: So, Chris Heatherly, you've built a career being at the forefront of the next things in tech. I expect that this hybrid is coming, and we expect you to be at the forefront of that. And we certainly thank you for spending the time with us today on the Playground Podcast. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are confronting the toy industry. And we'll probably have some far-reaching implications. And today, we're talking about the phenomenon of dollar stores. There are about 30,000 of them around the country in the U.S. compared to about 4,700 Walmarts. And Richard, you just wrote an article about this. Yeah,
1: uh, it's very interesting that most of the store openings, as a matter of fact, uh, I believe it's like 50% of the new store openings in 2021 are by... Dollar General, Family Dollar, Dollar Tree, and Five Below. Now, when we use the term dollar stores, we're really not talking literally about stores that only sell products for a dollar, but we're really talking about chains that have the word dollar in the name, and these are chains that focus on the lowest income groups. These are people who generally do not have credit do not have access to the internet. And as I think one Dollar General buyer told me once, uh, described their their customer this way, that they don't buy gloves until it's cold. They don't have the money to anticipate the seasons. Uh So it's a low economic shopper. And so we are seeing potentially an outside influence of these lowest income retailers on the bricks and mortar sphere.
0: We are, and they are not without controversy. As I've been reading about this issue, I keep seeing that there are towns and municipalities that want to limit the dollar store openings because they say that they contribute to food deserts and that they contribute to a competitive environment where traditional supermarkets can't open and compete. But we're really going to talk about it in terms of the toy business because for years— the dollar stores were where toys that didn't sell went (laughs) and you would find them there. You'd find configurations of toys that, that were done for that. But really as these grow, these are going to be a destination for shoppers and they're going to have an impact on the toy business.
1: Well, uh, a couple of things have happened. Uh, One, Chris, uh, during tougher economic times, Somebody who might have walked the aisles of Walmart suddenly finds themselves walking the aisles of uh, Family Dollar right. uh, simply because they don't have as much money. And I have to give it to these chains; they they give incredible value because of their buying power. Dollar General has over 16,000 stores. They have the ability to buy at very, very low prices. So what's happening is they're growing in part because of this uh, leveling down. And then the other thing that's happening, Chris, and this is just my opinion, the consumer who goes to a dollar store is the consumer who really cannot participate in the digital economy. Because you need two things. You need credit and you need uh, access to the Internet.
0: I I think that's true. But I, I also don't want to be too broad because I will tell you, quite frankly, that I go to the dollar store for wrapping paper and and other things that that I don't like spending a lot of money on. And it it's, it's actually does very well. And things like shampoo and, and other items, there's there's only a couple of dollar stores here in Manhattan. But I have definitely snagged some great deals there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's true, Chris. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Dollar General is opening a line of uh, kind of upsc- more upscale, low-income stores. So uh, it, it does appeal. And it also appeals to um, kids. Who don't have a lot of money to spend, some pocket money will go a long way there. Uh, Chris, as we discussed this, something I wanted your thoughts on. I wonder if Dollar Tree, which is a true dollar store, that nothing's over a dollar, what do you do if you're Dollar Tree and these inflationary times we we are now experiencing? puts them in a position where they cannot find a sufficient number of items they can sell for a dollar.
0: I think it's a challenge and I think you rebrand. And just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just a, you know, because we grew up in the era of five and 10 cent stores, right? And by the time we had our own money and our, our own allowances, you were paying more than 10 cents for things in there. So it's <laughs> it's really kind of the same same thing. but. I wanted to talk about it for the implications for the toys. Whenever I am in an area where there are dollar stores, I always do go in because I always want to see what the toys are. And it may not be this season's Barbie, but it's a really nice Barbie. And for, Or it may not be the latest VTech toy, but you'll find good VTech toys there. I do think that these are an outlet for toy makers and you don't want to ignore 30,000 plus doors
1: I've always felt that people accused the wrong company of murdering Kmart <laughs> uh, they always accused Walmart and I always wondered uh, if it wasn't the dollar stores that that kind of grabbed that Kmart consumer away from them so they're they're a powerful engine I think the toy industry needs to keep a close eye on this. I think the toy industry should study the business model of these toy stores, what their hot price points are. I think smart toy industry players are going to become students of this business model.
0: I think so because it offers a great deal of opportunity. I do think that there are ways that you can design toys just for this. You can design an LOL surprise or you can design a version of a hot property that you can sell at the dollar store and still make a profit and, most importantly, allow the kids whose parents are shopping in the dollar store to feel like they're connected to something that is mainstream. And I think that's really important. It's a phenomenon that we first began to observe with Pokemon cards, where for $2.99, a kid could be involved in the hottest thing out there without respect to what their economic situation was at home.
1: Yeah, Chris, and just one final comment. Keep your eyes on Five Below. In doing the work on this article, what I noticed was uh, they have a thousand stores, and I think they're opening right right around 100, 160 stores this year, and that as a percentage of their store base, that is the most aggressive number of store openings uh, of anyone. So they are a company on the grow, and I think that Five dollar price point was a good idea, because, you know, it gives them some room, uh, whereas I think a dollar store is going to really going to struggle finding product.
0: I remember when I was a kid, my friend Walter used to say, he used to justify buying anything at 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 Hoys, that the five and ten cents store with it's only a dollar. And now <laughs> now we could we could say it's only five dollars. But it is a sector to be paying attention to. It is one that I think offers a lot of opportunity for good margin. And we hope we've offered you a good opportunity to think about something that is top of mind. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy News, thetoyguy.com, marketing and media agency Chizcom, and Precise.tv. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.